Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Many historians have documented the Second Vatican Council, yet virtually no attention has been devoted to the Catholics who found themselves living behind an iron curtain at the end of the 1940s. Piotr Kaczynski's edited volume, Vatican II, Behind the Iron Curtain, changes this Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Many historians have documented the Second Vatican Council, yet virtually no attention has been devoted to the Catholics who found themselves living behind an iron curtain at the end of the 1940s. Piotr Kaczynski's edited volume, Vatican II, Behind the Iron Curtain, changes this story by profiling four communist-run countries, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, and Yugoslavia. Drawing on extensive research in English language scholarship and the national historiographies of the countries that it examines, Vatican II Behind the Iron Curtain gives us a glimpse into the vibrant and complicated politics of the period. Professor Kaczynski is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Maryland. I'm happy to welcome him to the program. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to begin our discussion by asking you what drew you to the study of modern Catholicism in Europe? In the broadest possible terms, this is a topic that has interested me really since I started university. So it's been quite a while in the making. I would say that I was interested in particular in the Polish case, just because of my own family background, with trying to understand back before Poland even joined the European Union, what the role of religion was in public life in Poland, and specifically in how Poles saw themselves as part of larger communities. Just because this is something that John Paul II used to describe quite a bit at the start of the 21st century, the relationship between Europe and some kind of a spiritual community. So I did a research project actually when I was 19 years old in Poland involved interviewing a cross-section of different politicians and church officials. And I got interested by this idea of the Christian inspiration of Europe's founding fathers. And basically that has animated all of my research since then, thinking about what exactly the connection is between religiously defined communities and secular, political, national, social communities, specifically in Europe, but I'm interested intellectually beyond Europe too. And how did this particular project came about? The volume came out of a conference, correct? That's right. I had a postdoc at the University of Virginia. It's been, I think, six years now. The volume actually is one of those fortuitous uh, occurrences really where I had a, the, a little bit of funding to put together a one-day event. There were, memory serves, six papers in total. Several of them were national case studies. Several of them were larger framing uh, projects, something like the Second Vatican Council and the question of communism, or the Second Vatican Council and Cold War geopolitics. And I realized when I was talking to some of the, con- the workshop participants after at dinner at the end of the day, that we really couldn't think of a single item in, in the English language, in the scholarly historiography, that would cover any, even any one of these countries comprehensively in terms of what was going on before, during, after the council in relation to understanding Vatican II. And fortuitously, all of the folks who were working on the national cases, myself included, agreed to contribute something. Uh, one person ended up dropping out. 
the, the Yugoslavia chapter was ended, excuse me, was added afterwards. And all in all, I'm very pleased with the coverage. Obviously, there were other ways that this could have come together. But in the end, the volume came together around, as you mentioned in your introduction, several national case studies framed by this larger question of the Second Vatican Council's position in the secular politics and intellectual and social currents of the time. So maybe we can pull back a little bit for those of our readers who are unfamiliar with the context. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about what some of the patterns are in terms of how communism and Catholicism, or rather I should say, patterns in terms of how the Catholic Church understood communism and socialism, even going back before the Soviet period in Eastern Europe. Sure. Well, so the first mention of communism in a papal document goes back to the, the papacy of Pius IX, the, the infamous mid-19th century pope who's associated with the First Vatican Council and with uh, sort of strong papal authority uh, and the, the liquidation of the papal states. But really, the way we think about the relationship between Catholicism and communism today, and I should say parenthetically that if you go back before the creation of the Soviet Union, uh, in fact, a lot of the time the word socialism is the word in question, particularly sometimes we're talking about Marx, sometimes we're talking about the first, second internationals, other times we're talking about other forms of socialism, but it actually becomes a very difficult conversation to have longitudinally in the sense of thinking from that mid-19th century first mention by Pius IX in 1846 of communism in an encyclical all the way down to the actual creation of first the Soviet Union and then the Soviet bloc after World War II. So it's a difficult conversation to structure. The simplest way to put it is that the relationship was almost always an antagonistic one in the sense that starting in particular in 1891 with the famous encyclical Rerum Novarum, which in some sense jump-started what we think of as Catholic social teaching or the Catholic Church's answers to the social question. Really, the idea was to try to counteract attrition of the ranks of the Catholic faithful, particularly in the lowest social classes within Europe, the poorest of the industrial proletariat to secular, if not atheist socialism, basically, the abandonment of the churches for radical political activism. And that was informally the transnational sort of set of stakes for uh, the Catholic Church on the one hand to deal with socialism as a set of ideologies, and on the other, radical socialist activists across the European continent at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries to think about how to address religion for their part. What really changed the conversation, of course, was the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and the ensuing creation of the Soviet Union, because that meant that all of a sudden there was a state power that was actively fomenting anti-religious campaigns, or at least in some sense threatening to impact religious life on the European continent. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to go on for too long here, but to make a long story short, the creation of the Soviet Union out of the ashes of the First World War in the context of the Bolshevik Revolution, and then if you dial forward to the ashes of the Second World War, uh, roughly 
25, 30 years later, depending which exact country we're describing, you have a similar set of questions being posed again about whether or not religion can persist under state-sponsored socialism and a socialism that has now been reframed in the Soviet image as militant communism. What are some of the patterns in terms then of how communism and Catholicism did interact in those immediate post-World War II years in the countries under study? So in other words, under Pius XII. The simplest way to put it, I think, would be to say that the relationship was deeply antagonistic from the the get-go in almost all of the countries. Poland, paradoxically, was maybe the more the most complicated of the cases. So, for example, uh, there's actually a, a very good book that that covers the this, these years synoptically. It's by actually a Canadian historian named Peter Kent. Uh, the title is The Lonely Cold War of Pope Pius XII. And the argument that Kent made is actually that the papacy of Pius XII in its first years after World War II witnessed an attempt to build very strong national church structures, national episcopates in all of the countries that had been either penetrated by Red Army presence or affected, because of course Yugoslavia and Albania had a separate story because of the guerrilla resistance led by Josip Tito. In effect, what happened was that the bishops from the get-go became antagonists of the nascent communist establishments, oftentimes being even more aggressive toward the communists than the communists were toward them initially. In Poland, the relationship was a little bit more complicated. Really, until the early 1950s, there was an attempt at maintaining a modus vivendi between at least the highest levels of church authorities and uh, the uh, nascent communist establishment. But the Vatican was a, a, a... sort of third wheel to all these processes, if you will. So it's actually very difficult to give a straight answer because one always has to triangulate in both what the Holy See was actually doing and what, on the one hand, national church leaders and on the other, national communist leaders were saying that the Vatican was doing in propaganda terms. Right. And so you mentioned Peter Kent's study. What was so lonely for Pius XII? Why that title? I, I think it's a very shrewd title. Kent's argument is effectively that Pius XII was abandoned to some extent by the United States in terms of trying to pursue a very aggressive early Cold War effort to put his foot down and draw a line in the sand in terms of communist penetration of Catholic-dominated societies. I probably wouldn't take the argument quite quite as far as Peter Kent does, but I think it's a really important argument, and it's very much it should frame the existing scholarly conversation about the transition into the early Cold War, into the early post-war communist period in Central and Eastern Europe. Frankly, not a lot has been written, particularly above the level of individual countries and nation states, about these years and the church in these years in Central and Eastern Europe. So in that sense, Kent's book is absolutely seminal because it gives us a starting point for trying to figure out whether, first of all, how much influence did Pius XII actually have? And second, where exactly did Pius XII fit in to this global constellation of change, some geopolitical, some intellectual, some at the individual national levels? 
One of the major historiographic tropes, as you just noted, first of all, there's not a lot of historiography on this topic, but you do note in the volume's introduction that one of the major historiographic tropes is the idea of a church of silence behind the Iron Curtain. Can you tell me a little bit about how scholars have traditionally viewed Catholicism in this period in those countries that were behind the Iron Curtain, and also how they maybe viewed Eastern European Catholicism more generally? Well, absolutely. So there are two dimensions to this. One, I should just start by saying that the phrase Church of Silence really comes to us from Pius XII himself. That's true. I should have mentioned that. The deck is a bit stacked in terms of thinking through through the idea. One thing I'll say, and this is actually connected to your question about Peter Kent's book, too. Personally, I tend to think of that line in the sand that Pius XII was trying to draw of a sort of containment policy by the Holy See, if you will, that to some extent he was willing to say that countries behind the Iron Curtain clearly were under communist rule. And there was clearly little that the Holy See could immediately affect in terms of what Catholics in those countries would be doing, just because they had to live one way or another under the reign of communists. question was, what would happen elsewhere? So I would... I I would give that as a quick preface to whatever the Church of Silence means. In other words, does for me, the Church of Silence as an analytical trope, rather than a particular phrase used by Pius XII, was always problematic because it suggested to me this acceptance of the notion of, at best, passivity, at worst, you know, a kind of subaltern on the part of Catholic populations living behind the Iron Curtain. In other words, Effectively, even if individual Catholics or small communities of Catholics were still practicing their faith or maybe even impacting national policy in some way, for in the grander scheme of things, they were Muslim. And in the grander scheme of things, they couldn't really participate actively in the life of the church the way that Catholics, laity and clergy, have been supposed to participate throughout the 20th century, according to new papal teachings. So, Analytically, that's a trope that's always bothered me. And if you look back to, I have one particular article in mind here by Richard Starr from 1956 from the Catholic Historical Review. But there, there are plenty of others where the phrase Church of Silence comes up as a given in the sense that scholars in the early years of the Cold War proceeded from the assumption that basically Catholics fell under the same kind of strictures that qualified Eastern Bloc countries as quote-unquote totalitarian. In other words, that there was no autonomous space for collective action. If you wanted, if you were had that kind of spiritual fortitude on your own, you could maintain your own belief. Maybe you could maintain it within the household. But in terms of meaningful social structures, religion was deeply limited in terms of what could actually achieve. I just don't think that's true. And I think a lot of recent scholarship has really done a great job of taking us away from that old trope. And I I, I think that that's actually, I mean, if if I may be so bold, that was one of the things that I wanted to achieve with this collection. And I think it does show, in, in effect, that a lot was going on that not only reflected life, so to speak, within the individual communist countries, but shows that they, the Catholics there, were also able to impact the larger processes within the church globally. Which is a fantastic segue to my next question, because I wanted to 
start talking about Vatican II, but some of our listeners might not actually be familiar with the Council. What was Vatican II, and how did John XXIII's actions differ from Pius XII's actions? The first part of that question is very easy. The Second Vatican Council was a series of four sessions of about a month and a half more or less in length each from the fall of 1962 to the fall of 1965. In other words, uh, there were these four sessions, one each fall for four years in a row. And in between, there were breaks where there were all kinds of preparatory meetings happening. Now, as you mentioned, John Twenty-Third was the Pope who called the Second Vatican Council when he became Pope in 1958. He uh, hinted almost immediately that he wanted to call uh, what he described as an ecumenical council. In uh, 1958, the wheels started turning in terms of concrete preparations and involved a massive, uh, really a massive enterprise throughout the church globally, gathering information on the state of the church worldwide, involving bishops, and also the consultation of expert theologians. Now, to make a long story short, because... Vatican II, just at the broad level, there's been a tremendous amount written about it, much of it wonderful history, not to mention very intricate theological debates about Vatican II. But in the broadest possible terms, Vatican II was responsible for uh, what John XXIII wanted to termed the aggiornamento, or in English, the updating of the Catholic Church. The argument being that, yes, the Catholic Church is eternal, but at the same time, there are specific historical manifestations of the church that can be taken into account by individual subsets of the church community meeting either at a council, uh, specifically the bishops, cardinals, etc., or consulting involved in the life of the council. Now, if I had to just nail out a few key bullet points, I would say, first, the engagement of the laity, right? So out, Catholics from beyond the, the, the classically defined ranks of the clergy. There had been, this was not new, throughout the, basically from the, from the 1920s onward, there was more and more of a call from successive popes to reactivate, so to speak, the laity in their engagement in the life of the church. But Vatican II made it clear that lay Catholics have a responsibility to wear their Catholicism on their sleeve in the modern world, not necessarily in trying to convert uh, on pain of some kind of punishment the rest of the modern world, but to bear witness to the values of Catholicism in the modern world. So, role of the laity, that's one. Next has to do with interfaith relationships. Now, the, the, the most prominent question here, there's a wonderful book written about the origins of this term by Berkeley historian John Connolly. The book is called From Enemy to Brother. The a complete reinvention of the relationship between the Catholic Church and Judaism and Jews more generally. The question being that there was now this idea of older brothers in faith that 
uh, this uh, conversation about Abrahamic religions, which had emerged in the early Cold War environment, got translated into the theological debates of the church meeting in council. And also, I'm just giving isolated examples here, but between Christian communities, Protestants, Orthodox, and how they're related to Catholics, other religions beyond the Abrahamic faiths, and so on and so forth. The most salient issue, if you will, and I'm going to sort of come to a close here about Vatican II because, like I said, I could go on, is the notion of freedom of conscience, the idea that uh, basically the reminder that individual Catholics have a responsibility as free-thinking, acting individuals to do their own uh, examination of conscience and to perform religion in more than just a, a sort of thoughtless, uh, ritualistic form of obedience to their clergy, but really to live the life of the church. And then there are the more ritualistic elements that come out of Vatican II as well, like clergy facing congregations during mass or the use of vernacular languages. In other words, to put it shortly, uh, Vatican II really was, and it's been called this by any number of scholars, a revolution in the history of the Catholic Church. You had posed the second part of that question, and I think it had to do with the differences between Pius XII and John XXIII. Do you want me to take that separately now? Yeah, maybe you could speak a little bit more to the point about the difference between Pius XII and John XXIII, specifically in terms of the Stalinist era and then, of course, the, the de-Stalinizing era. So what did it mean for the countries, in other words, that we're talking about here in this book? It's a very important question. To some extent, there's a political valence to that question, and I don't mean a left-right political valence, but there is plenty of controversy around Pope Pius XII. Most of it has to do with what he did or didn't do during World War II, specifically in reference to the Holocaust. But Pius XII, as the Pope during the communist years, also has the potential to generate a lot of controversy. In my own research, I engage pretty heavily with this issue. The historiography is not extremely developed on it, so I don't want to jump the gun in terms of trying to impose my own thoughts about Pius XII. But what I will say is that traditionally, particularly by a lot of Catholics on the ground in Central and Eastern Europe, John XXIII was seen as a welcome change, as someone who was interested in the daily life of Catholics everywhere. What I mentioned before about this Church of Silence idea or this policy of containment by the Holy See of Pius XII, if you will, John XXIII didn't agree with that at all. John XXIII, even without getting into the theological differences between them or the style differences in how they govern the church, one thing you can say immediately is that after Pius XII's death, the church shifted from basically having more or less written off uh, Catholics behind the Iron Curtain to practicing an active, we use the term from the later German process here, Ostpolitik, an Eastern politics of the church. And John XXIII's successor, Paul VI, built on this even more. But basically, the idea was that it wasn't enough just to let Catholics do whatever they could in countries that were run by communists. 
it was important for the Holy See and through it also individual episcopates to have the power to negotiate with uh, communist leaders, or really, this isn't just a communist issue, with any leaders anywhere, no matter how antagonistic to the Holy See, ideologically or politically, to try to improve the ability to make it easier to facilitate the basic mission of the church throughout the world. In other words, to save souls and to enable the practice of the faith. So that was a fundamental change in my view. And it's something that made possible a lot of what my collaborators and I describe in this book. You noted before when you were talking about the council, the importance of a few different uh, bullet points, as you said. One of them was freedom of conscience, which, as you mentioned in the book, is extremely important for the bishops as well as presumably the laity in those countries under study here uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Were there other important council documents or ideas or documents issued after the council that were especially important in your discussions with your colleagues as you were formulating this book? Let let me refer maybe more to issues, just because some of the issues produce multiple documents. I will say, first, the relationship between Catholicism and other Christian churches. On the one hand, Eastern Orthodox communities. On the other hand, Protestant communities. There is a dimension, to some extent, the, the question of the Catholic Church and Judaism factored into our discussions, although actually it's less present in the book itself for a variety of reasons. But really, I would say interfaith relations, absolutely crucial. Freedom of conscience is important just because we're talking about religious life in countries that actively push unbelief as uh, ideology would be, would, be, would be too strong, but as, as a norm, if you will, socially and culturally. So in that sense, freedom of conscience implies not only the freedom to choose a belief system, but also to reject religious belief, so to speak. So that's why we really prioritize that to some extent. But there are also really, really important issues that might be considered more technical, particularly by, by non-specialists with respect to the Catholic Church, but really were very fundamental to how Catholics behind the Iron Curtain understood the impact of Vatican II on their daily lives. And and there are very immediate stakes in what was going on at the council. Uh, the best example for me is the liturgy, the practice of how to conduct mass, or the idea of printing uh, liturgical texts in vernacular languages, right? The idea being not just that after Vatican II, one could conduct mass in vernacular languages, but one could also make more printed material available more widely to Catholics in any number of countries in their own languages. Now, this, of course, created certain political problems because one had to have access to paper, to uh, printing machines to some kind of funds in order to be able to print and circulate these materials. So there were there's a political valence even to issues that one might regard as pretty technical uh, from the outset, but they were absolutely crucial. So now I would say that there are these two very different levels. There's the broad conceptual level about how communities interact with one another and what the horizon lines are for uh, the, the Catholicism's place in the world, and then there's the nitty-gritty of everyday life. And both of those levels were quite relevant to our discussions. 
I wanted to turn to Poland, which is your particular area of expertise. You mentioned it before. And of course, it's home to Karol Wojtyla, who most of our listeners know better as Pope John Paul II. And you begin your chapter by talking about the lead up to Vatican II. How did Polish communists view the church? And can you give us a sense of how Catholic activities and activism was also evolving in the 1940s and 50s? Right. So I will say that there were several distinct stages in Poland in terms of the, the, first of all, what was going on in terms of the communist regime being established in Poland after World War II. And then second, how that translated into the horizons of possibility for religious life and religious involvement in public life. So first, the traditional chronology would go something like this. In 1944, uh, the Soviet Union established its own puppet government in eastern Poland, which uh, it then recognized as the legitimate government of Poland. 1944 into 1945, you have the beginnings of uh, life being reestablished on the ground, reconstruction in Poland with the Red Army chasing out the former uh, Nazi occupiers. 4445 to 1948 are years of reconstruction. That doesn't mean that everybody is working side by side as brothers in arms, but it meant that there was enough to do at the, and enough uh, practical complexity to the material reconstruction alone, even before getting into political reconstruction, that c- Catholics were given a reasonably wide berth. And I don't just mean here in terms of going to church or rebuilding their, their churches, I mean also in terms of creating Catholic youth organizations or reading groups or journals of their own. One of the most remarkable things for me as a scholar of Polish Catholicism is to reflect on the fact that actually for almost the entirety, depending on how you classify them, actually for the entirety of the communist period, there were independent lay-run Catholic journals in communist Poland. Now, there, there is some political complexity there that would have to be teased out. Some of them were actively collaborating with uh, the regime. But the, the bottom line is that there were places for Catholics to go and wear their Catholicism on their sleeves as folks wanting to rebuild Poland and take a part in public life until the advent of Stalinism. And that's typically dated to 1948, 1949, uh, 1948, right into the mid-50s. And I would say here, 1955 or 1956, that's Stalinism. And that doesn't mean that everyone gets imprisoned right away or that everything gets shut down right away. In the case of some of the elements I mentioned before, it's more the process is more gradual. But for 1953 in Poland is really the year of a hard hit on Catholic communities and on the Episcopal hierarchy in particular in Poland, where Stefan Wyszyński, the, the head bishop of Poland, the primate, is put under house arrest in September 1953. Uh, actually, the, the lead up to that, there's a show trial of a fairly prominent bishop, the Bishop of Kielce, Czesław Kaczmarek. Who, and the, the immediate impetus for Wyszyński's arrest is that he was asked to denounce Kaczmarek after the bishop was convicted in a show trial 
of having been an American spy, and Wyszynski refused to denounce him, and then he was arrested. So the other side of that coin, let me say two things. One is that Poland is actually quite distinctive. As I mentioned before, uh, when you were asking me about what was going on immediately after World War II in each of these countries, the head bishop Wyszyński, first of all, he, he was arrested in 1953. Now, he only became head bishop in 1948. He was relatively young. He really bent over backwards to try to come to an understanding with the communist regime. But he was never put on show trial. In fact, it wasn't publicly disclosed that he had been arrested, only that he had been stripped of his functions as primate. The communist government's priority in Poland was not to make a martyr, make an example of the uh, of Wyszyński, the way that it had been, say, in Hungary with Mincenti, in Czechoslovakia with Josef Beran, or in Yugoslavia with Stepinac. Poland was very different in this respect. So I don't want to make it sound like the communist authorities were having a very pleasant relationship with the Episcopal authorities, but Wyszyński suffered considerably less than his counterparts in the other communist countries. The second issue is that the national Episcopal hierarchy wasn't shut down. It wasn't even totally co-opted, unlike, for example, in Hungary, after Wyszyński's arrest. And Wyszyński, in the fall of 1956, simply walked out of house arrest and went right back to being primate in his day-to-day exercises uh, once de-Stalinization was underway. So in some sense, Stalinism in Poland, on the one hand, clear, clear consequences and very brutal repressions, particularly for lower-level clergy who had been involved in resistance activities in World War II or laymen who were trying to organize some kind of political activities in the 1940s. On the other hand, there was a lot of wiggle room, to, to, to uh, you know, put it casually, for Catholics who wanted to stay Catholic in their public practice, as long as they didn't stick their necks out too far. So in that sense, Poland is kind of a story of paradoxes because it's the most Catholic country. So obviously the communist authorities had to pay attention to the Catholic church. Maybe to some extent that explains why, even though it was very repressive experience overall, it was far, a far cry from the old church of silence story. I'm glad that you mentioned how very Catholic Poland was because something you mentioned in the book and it struck me is, of course, Poland's population was in fact more Catholic after the Second World War than it had been at the beginning. Um, it, it had lost its Protestant minorities as well as its Jewish minorities. So Catholicism was a force to be reckoned with, perhaps before the First World War II, but certainly afterwards. So given that Poland did differ from other Iron Curtain countries to some degree, how did its role at the council also differ? Well, there, let, let, me, let me split this into two different aspects. One has to do with what Poles actually did at the council, and the other has to do with the international story or framing or uh, narrative of the council. Start with the first one. 
Poland had a lot of bishops who were able to go to the conference, uh, excuse me, to the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the, if I remember off, right off the top of my head, I think there were 24 bishops who got to go from Poland to the, just to the first session of the council. Now, not all the bishops were, not all the same bishops were able to go to every session, but there were always between 20 and 40 bishops from Poland at the Second Vatican Council in the course of sessions. That was a pretty big number, given that both from Czechoslovakia and from Hungary, we're talking about single digits. Uh, Yugoslavia had almost an equivalent, sometimes an equivalent number to what Poland had in terms of the number of bishops who were allowed to travel. But Yugoslavia also had a very different geopolitical situation because of the fact that it was controlled by Tito and separated from the larger geopolitics of the Soviet bloc. So that being said, a lot of the same constraints applied to what applied, say, in Czechoslovakia or Hungary. In other words, bishops couldn't just go to the Second Vatican Council. They had to receive their passports like any other uh, Polish citizen. Uh, the, the Ministry of Internal Affairs had to issue the passport, and there was a process to it which almost always involved some contact with the secret police. And to some extent, always opens the question when we talk about any aspect of communist era, Central and Eastern European history, to what extent were the secret police involved, were the people we're talking about secret police informants or agents. I'm going to set that question aside for the moment. I just wanted to say that it was hovering in the background. Now, there were a few bishops from Poland who made names for themselves at the council. Stefan Wyszynski, whom I mentioned before, the primate, was already a known quantity by the time the council started. He actually had a personal relationship with John XXIII, uh, dating year, back years before uh, Angelo Roncaghi became Pope John XXIII. So John XXIII put him on several very important uh, institutions that were responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the council. And Wyszyński was always one of the more prominent bishops at the council. Now, Wojtyla, the future John Paul II, at the time that Vatican II started, was a relatively young bishop. He was 42 years old. He had only become an auxiliary bishop four years earlier. What's interesting, actually, is that it was during the Second Vatican Council in 1964 that he was promoted to archbishop, to the metropolitan of the Archdiocese of Krakow. So, really, he gains a tremendous amount of stature in the course of the Second Vatican Council. You can see this. It's, it's actually quite easy to see if you read the diaries, for example, of the well-known French-Dominican theologian Yves Conga. 1962, Wojtyla passes through Congar's uh, field division. Congar doesn't know who he is. I don't even think he notes the name. By the fourth session of Vatican II in 1965, there are whole paragraphs devoted to how remarkable Wojtyla is and what an impact he's going to have on the church. That's so, right. I mean, you, you note uh, in the book you know, that he seems to exude this energy for Congar. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I found that very striking. And of course, you know, Congar intellectually was very, very important for Wojtyla 
and uh, Voitua would ultimately make him a cardinal at, toward the very end of Congat's life. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's just an in, it's, it's one sort of anecdotal lens pointing to the fact that Poles were able to make names for themselves. Now, the traditional impression of Polish bishops at the council is of, so to speak, a bunch of marginal figures, many of whom came ill-prepared, didn't really have a good command of Italian or Latin, and were just kind of there. At best, tourists, at worst, bumps on a log. I would say in practice, there was much more going on. And it wasn't just a matter of Wyszyński or Wojtyła. I don't want to throw out a list of names, but there were at least half a dozen Polish bishops who were deeply involved in the day-to-day runnings of the council or became deeply involved as the, the council unfolded and went on into one session after another. And that really made it possible also, here I'm moving to the, the second answer I wanted to give to your question, for Poland to become part of the conciliar story. In other words, not just the fact that Wyszyński was involved in the administration of the council or that he was really trying to push uh, for uh, a declaration about the Virgin Mary, that the uh, Polish bishops were involved in the question of whether or not to condemn communism at the Second Vatican Council, or the fact that uh, Wojtyla was really deeply involved in the in the drafting of the document that would ultimately become the major teaching of Vatican II, the pastoral constitution Gaudium et Spes on the church in the modern world. Beyond that, there's this question of what the Poles were doing in and around Vatican II. And here there's a story which really I think is quite unique to Poland, and it has to do with the laity, that there were lay Catholic intellectuals, some traveling as journalists, some actually just as politicians from communist Poland who were in Rome at the time, who were making all kinds of connections. There's a a fascinating transnational networking process playing out on the margins of theological debates in Rome in the mid-60s. And this this was visible in the French uh, press, in the Italian press of the time, and it helped to really showed that there was, that first of all, that there was a Polish presence, and second of all, to ground and provide some kind of perspective for what was going on in the church in Poland beyond this narrative that we were talking about before, the Church of Silence, that these weren't just benighted Catholics who were incapable of, of claiming agency for themselves within the church, but they were able to come to Rome and do something and then translate whatever was going on at the council into some kind of wider consequences for the church and for secular politics. I want to get back to the those lady that you were talking about in just a moment. But before that, could we go back to Wyszynski and talk about what his priorities were for the council? You mentioned, for example, a declaration about Mary. Uh, there was the question about the German territories. What was what was he really interested in? What was he hoping his bishops would vote on as a block? So there's a lot that I could say. There's actually some wonderful work that's been done by the sociologist Melissa Wild, and I refer to this in passing in my book about the results of the voting by bishops from individual countries at the council. One thing that struck me, just this is all by way of preface to answering your question, is that 
if you look at the data that Melissa Wilde has gathered, you find that a lot of what the bishops said they did or what Wyszynski had instructed the bishops to, to do, they didn't necessarily do. Right. I love that. <laughs> Specifically, this has to do with the teaching on the Virgin Mary, where Wyszynski, you know, one thing I will say uh, about Wyszynski, Wyszynski and Wojtyla in uh, particularly the communist era were often for propagandistic reasons, positioned at be, uh, presented as being at loggerheads with one another. The story was much more complicated than that. Of course, there was a generational difference. Uh, Wyszynski was 19 years older than Wojtyla. There was a difference in terms of their educations. But the, the salient point is that both of them had had Marian awakenings. Both of them were incredible devotees of the Virgin Mary. And they saw, they, they proceeded in complete lockstep on this. But if you look at the data, you find that actually the data was much more differentiated in terms of how the Polish bishops on the whole voted with respect to the Virgin Mary. That was the single overriding priority for Wyszynski. Uh, there were some more complicated uh, factors when it comes to how, uh, let's say, decisions about the liturgy so Wyszynski was actually very, Melissa Wilde in her work uses the terms progressive and conservative. Wyszynski was, quote unquote, progressive in terms of his teachings on the liturgy, even though he would actually be criticized quite strongly by lay activists in communist Poland after the council for apparently not doing enough to promote changes that had been made during the council. Anyway, he, he took a mix of positions, and I think that's one thing that's worth emphasizing, is that it wasn't just the case that bishops coming from behind the Iron Curtain were either agents of the regime and voting for progressive causes, or reactionaries who were doing everything they could to throw mud in the face of the communist agenda. It's more complicated than that. And I, I found this particularly striking when I was doing my research for my chapter, that the Polish bishops voted differently on different issues and clearly worked through a lot of the research and clearly listened to what was being debated at the council. So I found that to be particularly striking. Right. Not tourists at all, but actually people who were indeed engaging and and voting the way that they felt their conscience was leading them. Exactly. You noted before about Poland having substantial civic space for Catholic lay activists, at least compared to the other countries behind the Iron Curtain, and that some of those laities certainly were involved with the council, and they were also relaying its messages back home to Poland. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What were some of the ways that the council was being transmitted or the information was being transmitted? What were some of the ways that they were engaging with the council? One thing that is really extraordinary about communist Poland is that with the exception of the years 1953 to 1956, for the entirety of the communist period, there was a journal that appeared weekly in Poland called Tygodnik Powszechny, or roughly translated as Universal Weekly. And Tygodnik Powszechny, which was based in Kraków, actually one of the future John Paul II's first jobs after he finished grad school was as a columnist for Tygodnik Powszechny. So it really, it drew laity and clergy together from all across Polish intellectual and cultural life. 
One of the extraordinary things about the Gödning Povshechne is that it got it had a permanent journalist slot at Vatican II. So it's found when its founding co-editor Yezhuturovich, who was quite a figure in transnational European Catholic circles in the 1960s and 1970s, was in Rome. Now, at one point, he was so. Uh, uh, sorry, let me just build on that for a second. There was a column on the front page of many of the issues, not every issue, but many of the issues of the Gordon Popschekne during the sessions of the Second Vatican Council. Jezu Turovic is calling from Rome. So he was just giving reports on everything that had happened in the past week in the course of the session as he was attending it. Now, in 1964, because he had affixed his name to a petition, uh, with about, without going into the details that had problematic political consequences for the communist regime, Turovich wasn't allowed to go, but the regime still allowed one of his deputies to go to Rome. So there was continuity in the coverage for Catholics in Poland. Now, I will say, I mentioned before, there, was a, a ver- there were varying degrees of, of co-op- cooperation or collaboration on the part of lay Catholics with the communist regime, the single organization that operated truly the entire time throughout the communist era was an organization called PAX, P-A-X. Uh, they also had a, a sort of a satellite organization. It was a little bit different, the Christian so- Social Association. These organizations pretty much uh, proceeding in lockstep with the regime, regularly consulting with the regime on their message, and uh, had also extensive representation at the council. But aside from that, there was also a monthly journal connected to Tegodnik Povshechne, that was based in Warsaw. It's called Vienge Bond. It was uh, co-founded by actually the future prime minister of Poland, Tadeusz Mazowiecki. Uh, Mazowiecki himself didn't go to Rome, but his co-founder did and covered several sessions of the council. So I mean, there were very different perspectives playing out in terms of the message being relayed back. One thing that I have to say is that even with censorship, and of course there was censorship in the com- in the press in every country behind the Iron Curtain, Poles were remarkably well-informed. Uh, relative to other communist countries, about what was going on on a rolling basis at the con- at the Second Vatican Council. The other thing that I will say is that Poles also, and these were, in some sense, these institutions were all connected to one another. Tegodnik Povshechny Vienge were part of a network. It's called the Znak movement that had been founded during destalinization. It was a a concession made by the G- Communist General Secretary Władysław Gomułka w- in return for the Catholic intellectual support when he was brought back into power in, the, in 1956. He agreed to create a, a circle of MPs, of Catholic deputies to the parliament, who weren't under the thumb, so to speak, of the communist regime. Now, sometimes they were punished for statements they made or initiatives they undertook. But one initiative which I find particularly striking was taken by the leader of this group. Uh, his name was Jerzy Zawieski, who was a playwright and a poet who had private audiences. John the Twenty Third at the beginning of the council and Paul the Sixth at the end of the council, 
trying on his own to renormalize relations between Poland and the Holy See, which had been broken off by the new communist authorities already in 1945. Pretty striking to see that, uh, that you have, I mean, he failed, although I think he actually did make a difference. And that's maybe a sort of separate conversation. But still, the fact that Zawiejski got two private audiences with two separate popes to militate for these issues, and particularly at his audience with John Twenty-Third, he conveyed personal greetings from the head of the Polish Communist Party to the head of the Universal Catholic Church. That's right. It was something like, I hope you're in good health. That's right. May, <laughs> You know what? I don't remember the verbatim quote, but it, it is something like that. It's, you know, may, may you live long or something yes, like that. Yes, yeah, that's now, right. Un, un, unfortunately, John Twenty-Third died soon thereafter. He died of cancer in between the first and the second sessions. But but still very striking, the kind of flexibility that, that the Catholic and the lay activists were allowed by the communist regime. And one, one thing that I just popped out at me in your chapter was the fact that there were these Catholic intelligentsia clubs. And in 1965, you noted that one of these clubs, the Warsaw Club, hosted a grand total of 1,732 meetings, along with 1,432 talks. That's right. And speaking as an academic where it's difficult to get people to go to one talk and one meeting, let alone <laughs> let alone over 3,000 of them, this is a pretty impressive statistic. And that's in the course of one year. So certainly there was a lot of activity happening. And as you note, the council provided this unique transnational space for interactions and debates that were then being relayed back uh, into Poland. So you end your chapter by discussing the celebrations that Wyszynski was set to organize in 1966 to celebrate the millennium of Polish Catholicism. They did not go off as planned. Speaking of these kind of negotiations between the government and, and the Catholic prelates, what happened? Why didn't they go off as planned? There is a, a complicated story connected to letters that were sent out by Polish bishops on November 18th, 1965. Now, the Polish bishops sent letters out to a wide range of episcopates inviting bishops the world over to come to Poland to celebrate the millennium of Polish Christendom, as they termed it. But what happened on November 18th, 1965, is that they sent a letter to German bishops. Of course, it's problematic because there were two Germanies and uh, they, they, they're, they're sending just one letter to German bishops. But the second issue is what they said in the letter. Uh, talk of forgetting, talk of forgiving, the implication being First of all, that the church had the power to determine forgiveness and forgetting in the international relations between Poles and Germans. And second, that Poles had something to apologize for. This is connected to something you raised earlier. In other words, among other demographic shifts at the end of World War II, the forced population transfer of ethnic Germans out of Polish territory. Uh, because Polish territory underwent some border adjustments at the end of the Second World War. Now, what this meant 
unfortunately for the bishops, was that a major political firestorm engulfed them as soon as they returned to Poland. They hadn't consulted the letter in advance with the communist regime. Uh, they actually hadn't even really consulted it with any of the laity. And some of the lay activists were, were a bit miffed at them about this too, because they felt like they were in a, in a position to provide the kind of adequate support that they should to the bishops. This was not Wyszyński's initiative. This was the initiative of the apostolic administrator of uh, the Silesian town of Wrocław. His name was Archbishop Bolesław Kominek. So Kominek, who, uh, Wrocław was a city that had been German until 1945 and was absorbed into Poland by border shifts, territory taken away from Germany to compensate for territory that Stalin took in the east of Poland uh, at the end of the Second World War. And what this meant was really Kominek got his other, his, got his colleagues in the Episcopate to sign off on an initiative of using the millennial anniversary of Polish Christendom to try to bury the hatchet, if you will, between Christian communities among Poles and Germans. And also, in some sense, dissolving the divide between Western and Eastern German uh, Christians there. Now, what happened, two, two consequences. One, I already mentioned, the political firestorm back in Poland. And I'll elaborate on that real quickly in a second. But the other consequence that's worth noting is that the Polish bishops were disappointed. They didn't get the answer they wanted from the Catholic bishops, from the German Catholic bishops. They thought that the German Catholic bishops were hedging in their response. Wyszyński personally took the whole situation very hard. As I mentioned, he was deeply devoted to Mary. He had dedicated already in 1956 and 57, he had declared that the entire millennial celebration would also involve an act of the Polish nation surrendering to the Virgin Mary, and his here really the what he saw as one of the most important enterprises and endeavors of his entire life, and certainly of his leadership of the Church in Poland was being derailed by this one letter that had been sent to Germans, to which he hadn't even gotten the kind of response for which he and his Polish bishop colleagues were hoping. So this was a catastrophe for the Polish episcopate. It made it extremely difficult to uh, organize pilgrimages. Paul VI wasn't even able to come to Poland. There had been a plan for him to come and make a pilgrimage to the Marian icon, Black Madonna at Częstochowa. And at every step of the way, the Catholic celebrations in 1966 in Poland were met by counter-celebrations, or counter-demonstrations organized by the communist government. And these ranged from athletic rallies and concerts that were meant to draw numbers away from those who were in attendance to rallies and attacks in the press on the church and on Wyszyński personally. So what, what began as this expectation of a moment of glory really turned into a very bitter pill 
for the institutional church in Poland. And it, it also makes it very hard for that reason uh, to talk about the short-term consequences of Vatican II in Poland. I think that's been a, a problem quite often in Polish historiography for decades is thinking Vatican II in terms of its role in communist Poland requires thinking beyond the year or two immediately following the council because the immediate follow-up to the council was devastating for the church in Poland simply because of this issue connected to the millennial celebration. But on the other hand, the debates that the council had provoked, particularly among the laity, but also within the clergy and among the bishops, really lasted and really picked up steam, in, particularly in the 1970s. And this is in large part due to uh, the future John Paul II himself, years before he became pope, in terms of hosting debates and asking for input and really trying to introduce maybe not all the, all the reforms of the council, but at least put issues on the table that had previously been unthinkable in uh, Catholic Poland. That gives us some kind of a sense of the longer history, maybe, or anyway, the longer history that needs to be written about uh, the Vatican Council in Poland. So what's next for you? Is that a story you're writing about? Or are you working on other things now? That's a great question. Thank you. I actually am just wrapping up. Well, I've just wrapped up, actually, two books, one in Polish, one in English, uh, both of which deal to some extent with an earlier period. Really, the I, I have had a long-term project for years trying to understand the relationship between French Catholic thought and Polish and Catholic thought and how that relationship impacted the Catholic Church more globally. What I ended up doing was writing in Polish a book about how French Catholic thought created this new set of practices within the Polish Catholic laity after World War II, despite the emergence of the communist regime. Whereas in English, I wrote a book that's coming out in September with Yale University Press that focuses on the larger implications of ideas of the human person, of a revolution, of what it meant for Catholics to try to coexist with Marxists, and maybe to try even to uh, play off of one another, even in the worst years of Stalinism, to try to solve problems that had been plaguing the Catholic Church since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that book, in some sense, really ends with de-Stalinization in 1956, the discrediting of some of the Stalinist debates, but also the selection of themes like the human person or human rights emerging out of that, social revolution as themes for the Catholic Church to pick up. Now, there, I'm definitely very interested in going beyond 1956. I've just finished an article about what I call the Catholic 1968, the idea that there's an immediate afterlife to the Second Vatican Council that created a space for Poles to play a serious role in the globalizing of the Catholic Church. Because after all, after Vatican II, and I know we haven't talked about this at all, after Vatican II, one of the major issues facing uh, the, the Church was dealing with the consequences of decolonization and the construction of durable communities that were linked with one another, that were strong in themselves, and also linked with the traditional 
uh, with the church's traditional base on the European continent, but across Africa, across uh, Southeast and Eastern Asia, uh, across Latin America, sort of bringing all of these various territories together into a genuinely global church. Uh, and this is where we get into conversations about international development, international solidarity, as well as the infamous 1968 encyclical Humanae Vitae, uh, banning contraception or reiterating the church's ban on contraception. I think all of these are part of the long-term consequences, both of the story that we've told in this book about Vatican II and of the story that I was exploring about what the experience of Catholics in communist Poland brought to bear by 1956 for the larger global story of the church. So there's a lot more to be said. I'm going to try to read this forward at least until the end of the Cold War in my subsequent work, and we'll see where it takes me. Thank you so much. That sounds fascinating, and hopefully our listeners will not only pick up this volume, but now they have homework ahead of them. In September, they've got (laughs) your new book out, and if they don't yet speak Polish or read Polish, they're going to have to learn, because clearly there is lots more to read from you in Polish as well as English. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it.